I'm Adam Blattenberg from Diesel World. Hi, this is Dan, owner of Dan's Diesel Performance. I'm Christian Roth of BD Diesel. I'm Braden Fleece, and you're listening to the Diesel Podcast. What's going on, Diesel Nation? We're excited to have you guys with us today on the Diesel Podcast. This episode, we had asked our Instagram followers what kind of questions they would have for an attorney who deals with EPA cases as it relates to diesel parts in the aftermarket. And there was a lot of great questions that you guys guys gave us. We're going to ask as many of them as we can on this episode. So we're going to talk about the RPM Act, talk about what kind of enforcement the EPA is doing, what they're doing with shops, with manufacturers, as far as with the racing side, if there's a, a, a path to have a race vehicle, how you would have it, you know, as a, as a truck owner, but then also as a company that makes parts, how you could be able to support the racing industry. So really excited to welcome Stuart Cables back on. We did an episode with him about a year ago, and he's going to answer a bunch of questions for us now. For any of our listeners out there that don't subscribe to us on YouTube, we want to encourage you guys to do that. Just search the Diesel Podcast and you'll be able to see these episodes where we're doing video. So we've got the guest with us, we're, we're meeting and, and chatting together to be able to bring in some really great information. And today, Stuart's going to share with us some documents. So some of the things he's talking about, we're going to pull up on the screen. He's going to be able to show us exactly what the EPA is saying in regards to parts and the enforcement and the fines and, and tons of different things like that. All right, let's get to the podcast with Stuart and chatting about the EPA and the diesel aftermarket. Stuart, welcome back to the Diesel Podcast and a, a really interesting chat that we're going to have today about emissions and the RPM Act. And we got a ton of questions from Instagram and our listeners. And these episodes are always really insightful. And I know after your last one, there was so many views and follow-ups and questions and YouTube comments. And uh, I know you're a busy guy and I appreciate you taking time out to chat with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Um I uh, appreciate you inviting me back on the podcast. Uh, I had a great time last time. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate for the industry and I work on a lot of these cases. So just want to make sure that everybody is properly informed. And I think that you've got a great followers. And uh, I think the best way for us to do that is to have another, have another talk. The something that's really important is, you know, when we, when we were asking for questions from our audience, I thought, you know, what if, what if somebody didn't catch the first episode? What if they didn't hear our conversation? And I wanted to have you explain a bit about your, your background in history, working on these specific types of cases and, you know, the experience that you have is invaluable. And it's why with the things that you're going to talk about and that you talked about before, it's so incredibly important for the listener to know, you know, what your background is on these types of cases. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so I went to law school, uh, here in Denver, university of Denver, and I graduated in two, uh, December, 2006, I passed the bar in May of 2007, but before I passed the bar exam and I became an actual lawyer, I was uh, working as a law clerk for a law firm in Denver that was hired by ATS and people in the industry know ATS Diesel, they know uh, Clint Cannon. And starting in January of 2007, I worked there. And uh, after I you know, passed the bar exam, uh, Clint sort of hired me to come on site and work as the company's general counsel. And as part of that job that I had there as general counsel, uh, one of the things that we did was we looked to make sure that we were compliant with all the state local and federal regulations and laws 
as they would relate to anything to do with the shop. So employment stuff, um, you know, federal rules and regulations related to OSHA, uh, did a lot of work with the uh, Department of Labor on employment. And probably most importantly, we were making sure that the ATS parts, at least to the ability that we had at that time, were compliant with the uh, um, state and federal laws related to clean air. So the state of California CARB requirements and then the federal government's Clean Air Act and the EPA requirements that are related to making sure that we have clean air to breathe and things like that. So any company that does manufacturing for uh, diesel parts that pertain to the air and the fuel uh, for a diesel motor, they're required to comply with all those rules. And part of my job as I was working at ATS was to make sure that we were making parts that complied with the federal laws and the state laws. So from a very early point, I mean, you've been familiar with what a company has to uh, go through or test or, or be in compliance with, which I, I think was a lot sooner than may have you know come to light in the public, which when we did our last episode, I mean, it was a really, it, it, it's a hot button topic even now, but it's just, there's more awareness in the public uh, of what's going on and how it affects diesel companies and other parts of the industry that you've been working on for quite a long time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so as everybody knows, the DPF was uh, mandated by the EPA onto diesel vehicles, the 2007 timeframe. And uh, state of California came up with some new rules and some new regulations around that time to make sure that new vehicles had DPFs. And at that time, they were talking about mandating that a DPF be installed onto all diesels that retroactively, so pre-2007. That rule never happened, uh, thank goodness. But what what... I had to do and what Clint did at that time where we traveled to California and we participated in some of those rulemaking sessions to see sort of like how the rules were being discussed and how they were being made and what was going to be applicable. And so from 2007 all the way forward until present, we were doing this emission stuff. Now, as everybody knows, or as most people probably know, the state of California led the charge on making sure that everybody was emissions compliant. And uh, I have always taken issue with the way that the state of California has approached some of those environmental regulations, because I think that they just want to make everything illegal and they don't want any practical or pragmatic application of what the Clean Air Act or the state regulations are. But the, the state of California, the Air Resources Board, CARB, they sort of led the charge in the enforcement to make sure that things were legal and for sale and for uh, retail in the state of California. That's where you get the phrase 49 state legal is that if something was not regulated in California, you could sell it in the other 49 states. So that standard is not applicable anymore. But what I think everybody should know is that as part of those rules you had to get a executive order exemption for the parts that you wanted to sell in the state. And it, state of California struggled in the beginning to 
properly and legally implement that rule. But after a while, it became mandatory to have an EO on all the parts that they were selling there, that anybody was selling there, I should say, whether it was a local company or an out-of-state company that wanted to sell it into California. And what happened was the EPA, which is the federal uh, agency, had a very slow rollout of their environmental regulations and enforcement of the Clean Air Act as it would relate to our industry. But eventually they got going and that was probably around the 2015 timeframe that they really started to focus on enforcement in the aftermarket diesel industry. And they piggybacked off the regulations that the state of California made. So the standard is not the same federal versus the state of California. But what the EPA did was they leaned heavily on the regulations that were imposed in California in order to make sure that they had uh, the ability to actually enforce the laws that they wanted to enforce. Yeah, they seem very linked as far as the relationship between the two. And I think on another podcast, it kind of came up that not every state has the resources that California does financially or the time to be able to create something like that. So they've just sort of looked towards California's guidelines and said, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go by that. And I think with this, this conversation today is where I wanted to start was, you know, what is, what is, what's the current state of things as it pertains to companies, diesel shops, the diesel aftermarket, as you see it on a day-to-day basis that may be different from about a year ago when we chatted. Sure. So um, there's been a lot of movement in the industry, a lot of stuff that's been happening and it's on two different scales. One scale is what's happening with the manufacturers and the people who sell the parts. The other uh, portion of that uh, you know, section of the industry has to do with the federal regulation. As the people who listen to your first podcast with me know, in June of 2019, the EPA made what's called a compliance initiative. And a compliance initiative is a set of areas of focus that the EPA has where they decide that they are going to focus on these specific areas of environmental law that they believe pose a great risk to public health or to the environment. And in June of 2019, they created this compliance initiative and one line item one of the six areas of focus were the aftermarket, what they call tampering and aftermarket delete industry, which is just to put it simply, people who took a certified EPA vehicle, whether it was new or is a few years old, and they either altered or removed the emissions parts from that vehicle. And then they created a computer program or a tune in order to ensure that the vehicle would run correctly. The EPA didn't like that. They didn't think that the, they didn't, they thought that tampering and aftermarket delete market was a very uh, bold uh, way to challenge the laws that were existing at that time and that exist today. And so they created a compliance initiative. And that means that they were going to hone their focus in on that industry, and they were going to increase enforcement. That's where a lot of the stories and the questions and just commentary I've seen have come from is 
you know, usually with either a company or a diesel shop and they have contact with the EPA. And then as a consumer, you see certain parts that are no longer available. And and most of it is just reading things and seeing things. And it it seems like that that has increased recently, Um, or maybe it hasn't, maybe it's always been like this, but just from the outside looking in, it feels like it's increased. And so what has you know, in, in 2021, are things more intense now than they were in 2020 or 2019 or any other year? Or is it just more visible now with social media and, and commentary? And you know, I mean, even a podcast that, that we're recording now. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, June 19, there were enforcement actions before June of 2019. I think the first case that I had handled on a nationwide basis I'll uh, remember it specifically because I know it was happening at the time my second son was born. So it was in the uh, winter of 2016, 2017. So the enforcement was happening at that time, but there wasn't the compliance initiative yet. So what the EPA was doing is they were kind of poking around and they were picking out people that they thought were big violators and they were enforcing on those names and those companies. But in June of 2019, everything changed. And that's when they dedicated the time and the resources to pursuing all companies that were involved in any tampering or any any aftermarket deletes. So I'd say right now, as we sit in 2021, enforcement is just as high as it's always been. But I would say that enforcement started ramping up in the fall of 2019 to the winter of 2019, 2020, to the level it is now. And I think that because certain companies have settled their cases with the EPA, they've stopped selling parts. And because there's been all these fines going back and forth that the enforcement sort of ramped up in that winter of 1920. And it's been at a pretty consistent level since then. Now, as far as the, the penalties, and as a truck enthusiast, I might, you know, I wouldn't know what these are. And most of us don't, what kind of, what's the teeth behind this? Why, why do we see the, these massive changes or, you know, we'll see a company that maybe focused on one particular aspect of diesel now switch to another. What, what does the EPA do when, when they you know, send you a letter or visit your shop or, or, or something like that, that makes you say, well, I need to change. So, um, the the what you're referring to is the dreaded RFI. Yeah. Um, and what causes the EPA to send out an RFI is uh, information by way of an investigation that uh, they have reason to believe that you're selling some illegal parts. And it used to be back in that 2019 timeframe or before that they were getting that information and getting the, uh, do it, conducting the investigation pretty much online. They'd go to, or, or pick up a diesel power magazine or a diesel world or something like that. And they'd see people offering delete parts, whether it was EGR, DPF. And um, they would say, hey, we're gonna go contact this company. They seem like they're a big player. Nowadays, that's changed a little bit. Um, to get an RFI, their investigation usually relates to information that they got from another company that was under enforcement. 
So when you get a request for information under what's called Section 208 of the Clean Air Act, a company is required if it manufactures, engineers, installs, sells any parts that relate to a motor or a drivetrain, they're required to respond to the Section 208 request. If they don't, then they'll get maybe a formal lawsuit or maybe a subpoena, okay? Um, but that dreaded RFI is, you know, the EPA's effort to conduct an investigation and you're required by law to be truthful when you get that document. And um, when people get that document, they usually freak out a little bit as they probably should. I mean, it's a contact with the federal government on something that they might be doing wrong. But the investigations that they're conducting nowadays are usually related to information that they've got from another company in the industry. And a lot of times that company has been required to give them information. So, you know, now that they're up and running with a somewhat seamless enforcement uh, program, it's becoming easier for them to focus on smaller shops because they know that uh, everybody kind of understands what an RFI is, but they are getting that information through third parties or through anonymous tips or through other credible sources, usually documents from another party that would indicate that, that they want to get more information from a certain company. I know one of the questions, you know, someone listening to that just hears that is going to say, okay, is the federal government requiring say company A through whatever legal action or whatever it might be, they're requiring this documentation. That's why company B is getting this RFI because they had to give that, or are they just, I guess, volunteering it or, you know, something like that. Yeah. They're, they're not volunteering it. I can tell you that much. Um, there's a big uh, the best part about our industry is that guys are really honest and guys are really loyal. And they're especially loyal when it comes to their customers and they're especially loyal when it comes to other people they do business with. Nobody wants to give out the names of the person that sold them a tune. Nobody wants to give out the names of a customer who bought a tune. But the requirement of that RFI, that, that request from the federal government is that you're honest and if you're not, then you get personal consequences. And those personal consequences are usually what compels someone to um, give information to the federal government. And then they use that information to conduct investigations elsewhere. But, you know, it's not like people are snitching, to use a, to use a colloquial mm -hmm. term. It's not like people are, you know, like you might see in, in a movie, they're, you know, like an informant. That's not how it is. You don't have a bunch of guys out there who are trying to give extra money to the EPA to get a benefit from it. In fact, the EPA does not consider a tip on another company when they're looking at your enforcement action. They okay. won't give you a break if you give them information. Gotcha. Um, been down that road before, uh, you know, not because my client wanted to, but just out of curiosity, because sometimes that can help. The EPA doesn't negotiate in that way when it comes to a possible penalty or possible fine. They The way that they negotiate is 
that um, you know you provide your information and see how cooperative you are. But the people who are giving information over to the federal government and the EPA, they're not doing it voluntarily. They're doing it because they have to by law. Now, when with with the punishment, I wanted to start with this next question: Is so you get a punishment, and you know it, I'm sure it's it's monetary if it's civil. So how do they determine what your penalty is? How do they say, okay, well, it's six figures, seven figures, however high it goes? How sure. do they do that? Sure. So um, there's the EPA operates. Uh, they've got this big document the Clean Air Act that was, you know, made in the 60s uh, under the Nixon administration when pollution started to become a huge problem. And just like any gigantic piece of federal legislation, it's confusing and it's got a lot of ins and outs and it takes a long time to understand what's going on with it. So what the EPA does is they create guidance internally and their guidance is based on how their office, the director of the EPA, in what it, whatever administration you're under, whether it's the Trump administration or the Biden administration or the you know Obama administration, as the case may be, that guidance get, tells them how to do the enforcement. So, it's not necessarily written out in the Clean Air Act in certain terms, but it does give the EPA direction on how to proceed forward. So the Trump administration uh, has been heavily involved in the enforcement of our industry. The Trump administration created the June 2019 Compliance Initiative. The Trump administration uh, created the penalty policy of January this year, which I'll get to in a minute. And the Trump administration created the tampering policy of November in 2020. Okay, these are all guidance documents that the EPA uses to determine factors for enforcements and fines and things like that. Now, I think we could all agree that a Democratic administration would have probably made the same enforcement decisions or, or maybe even more uh, punitive enforcement decisions than the Trump administration did. But no matter what administration you're in, you get guidance. And I'm gonna pull up on the screen an example of this guidance so I can share with the viewers um, kind of what we're talking about here. Okay. So if you go to uh, this document, this is the one we're talking about, how they determine what's tampering and what's not tampering. And then actually we talking about the penalty policy, right? Yeah. Okay, so we'll go to penalty policy first and then we'll go to tampering after that. So the penalty policy um, is made January 18, 2021, which is two days before Trump administration left the office and, and the Biden administration took over. So this is a Trump administration guidance. And the, this penalty guidance has changed from what it was before January, okay? So the new guidance speaks to fines. The new guidance speaks to the amount of money that a company would be responsible to pay as part of a fine. The new guidance also 
as it relates to a penalty, discusses uh, certain factors that would mitigate your fine or lower your fine, okay? And under this new guidance, uh, it is generally more favorable to the guys in our industry. This is one of the big changes I was referring to at the top of the podcast that you asked me about, Patrick. Um, the, the new guidance says that, or excuse me, let me start with the old guidance. The old guidance said that you have to pay a fine of just over $4,900 per part in the event that it's found to violate the Clean Air Act. No differentiation between the different types of, of parts, no differentiation between tunes or hard parts, just pure and simple. If you violated the Clean Air Act, you have to pay this amount per part, okay? okay. okay. Just over $4,900. So the new guidance has lowered those fines. And if I go down here to appendix C, which is the part that pertains to our industry, let me see if I can just find it here real quick. This is a tampering defeat device violations. This document is not exclusive to our industry. It also applies to big trucks and it also applies to stationary sources, diesel motors. But this is the section that applies to us. So what they're looking at here, if you go down, is in penalties per part is different categories for the size of the vehicle, different categories for the size of the motor. So as you can see in our industry, you know we've got uh, category C, diesel, light duty trucks. This is your normal Dodge Cummins, Duramax uh, power stroke category, you have two tiers. You have an egregiousness tier of one, which is not a defeat device. That is a device that affects the OBD. It is a device that maybe affects emissions, but is not remove emissions parts from the vehicle. And then you have a $3,000 fine for tier two, which is your tampering or your delete devices, your removal of or sale of, say, an EGR delete or a DPF straight pipe. So they've lowered the fines pursuant to their previous enforcement efforts. I, I think that, you know, $5,000 for a fine they discovered is not going to be reasonable for pretty much anyone to pay. So this is the scale that we're talking about here and the different egregiousness tiers. The other thing that the EPA has done is they've made two portions of their um, enforcement important. And I'm, I'm scrolling. I hope nobody's getting too, too dizzy here. Uh, but <laughs> it's hard to know exactly where it is in the document. If you go up here to... Um, the economic benefit. What the EPA is now doing is instead of jumping straight to that $1,500 or $3,000 fine, if you have a tampering uh, device, they are determining an economic benefit penalty component. And what they're doing is they're basically asking for companies to provide the amount of money that they made in profit from the sale of illegal parts. And that change is substantial because we're not 
we meaning the industry, we're not making 5,000 or 3,000 or even $1,500 on the sale of each part. We may be making 100, 200, 300, 500, depending on what the part is and what the application is. So the first thing they wanna know is about the economic benefit. How much money in profit did you make when you sold a part or installed a part? The second component besides economic benefit is they have created what are called gravity factors. And gravity factors are objective factors to calculate the gravity component of a penalty, which have to do with certain ways that you approach the enforcement. So certain gravity factors that they consider when they're determining a fine would be the harm to the environment, of course, in the EPA's mind, but still that's one of their factors. The egregiousness of the violation, which specifically refers to how uh, many, what type of parts you sold, how many parts you sold, et cetera, et cetera. They consider the size of a company. They consider, I'm just looking at my notes here, um, whether or not you're a manufacturer or just a retailer and an installer, a manufacturer has a heightened level of scrutiny because you're actually making and designing the parts. Um, the level of cooperation that you have uh, with the EPA during their enforcement action and any what's called remedial action that you've taken in order to mitigate any bad things that they allege that you've done. So those gravity factors, they take the economic benefit, they take the gravity factors, they lump them into one ball, and then they give you a fine. And they say, your fine is $500,000. And then my clients, almost all of them, they're like freak out. They're like, oh my God, I can never pay that amount of fine. Like, what am I going to do? Are they going to throw me in jail, et cetera, et cetera. I say, just relax. You know, that's what they're saying that you can pay. But there's this one portion which was applicable all the way back from the beginning, which is the a company's I'm uh, pulling it up here, a company's ability to pay. And if your company has suffered distress during COVID or you suffered distress from selling, changing your business model to stop selling parts that the EPA doesn't like, what they'll do is they'll take a look at a company's financials and they will determine what number you actually have the ability to pay. And that's why people usually hire me to help them out through this process is because you understand how all this compliance stuff works and what the guidance says, you can usually negotiate down to a fine where no one's really happy to pay it, but they're not gonna go out of business. And the EPA has a specific mandate, specific guidance directly from the top that says their goal is not to put a company out of business, not to cause people to be fired and not to create economic distress for a company as a result of their enforcement. So what that usually means is that if you're a big company and you're selling a lot of parts and you make a lot of money, you're probably gonna pay a big fine. 
if you're a small, a small business and you don't make a lot of money and you're struggling to make ends meet and you've sold some bad parts, according to the EPA, you can usually get a break on the fine. And I've negotiated, I mean, an entire wide range of different fines for different sized companies and different type company companies. It just depends who you are. This is where I see you know, our conversation so far meeting with some of the questions that we got from the audience. And this specifically leads into one, which a bunch of people, I don't even know how many asked us to, to talk about. And that is the RPM act. And okay. I wanted to have you explain to us um, what is the RPM act? What is it? What does it seek to do and what doesn't it allow as, as far as like a snapshot of, you know, if I don't know anything about it, what is the RPM Act? Sure. So that we'll start with the, the definition of tampering and uh, what parts may be considered illegal. And then we'll talk about the RPM Act because I think the background is important. The tampering and the sale of parts, aftermarket delete parts, is um, changed. And it used to be that you had to get, it used to be that if you had a reasonable basis under the EPA's previous guidance, which was what, what was called Memorandum 1A, if you believed that your parts did not negatively affect emissions and you could demonstrate that that was the case, then you would be allowed to sell them. Okay. That didn't apply to deletes, but it did apply to a lot of tunes, a lot of hard parts. The EPA changed their guidance on that too back in November. And when they changed their guidance on that in November, what they did was they said, okay, if you're going to sell a part, you can't just claim to the EPA that it doesn't violate the Clean Air Act, that you have a reasonable basis to sell it. You have got to provide us with evidence. And we want to see this you know, whatever the evidence is. We want to see uh, air testing on your dyno. We want to see uh, testing at a facility that is designed to promote EPA compliance. Or, or most importantly, we want to see testing with the state of California so that you can get a CARB EO number. Taking your word for it is no longer okay. All right? And the reason that they made this change is because people like me who are advocating for companies in the industry said you can install X exhaust manifold or turbocharger or tune because it doesn't negatively affect emissions and provide them with some documentation that didn't necessarily have to do with air testing. And then in order to prove me wrong, they would have to file a lawsuit, which a lot of times they don't want to do. Okay. So now as of December of 2020, you have got to provide the EPA with some testing evidence if you're selling a part that it does not negatively affect emissions from factory, your factory baseline. And you have to do it as of the date that you started to sell that part, which means there's certain parts that you can grandfather in but if I designed an exhaust manifold in January 2021 and I wanted to sell it for, you know, a Cummins or, you know, whatever it is, I have got to have testing in my hand that says 
that this is not bad for the environment, or I've got to have a CARBEO number. Okay. Okay. So that's really important when it comes to the RPM Act. And the reason it's important when it comes to the RPM Act is that there has been a uh, drastic misconception in our industry about what the RPM Act means. And the misconception is that if we can pass the RPM Act, we can pass this legislation through, through Congress, the race industry is going to be saved. And because the race industry is going to be saved, we are going to be able to sell parts for race vehicles. Yep. The, is, that, is, that, is that the perception in yeah. the industry that you, that you have? That, that's what, yeah, that's a lot of what I have read or seen is, is that's the way that it's, I've absorbed the information and, and that's why I wanted you to be able to explain more from what you see day to day, you know, what is, what exactly does this do or doesn't do? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I've looked at extensively at the RPM act because it affects the defense of all the clients that, that I have that are running into any issues with the EPA, the RPM act there is a, a federal law under the Clean Air Act that says in order to sell a vehicle in the United States, you have got to get it certified. And the certification includes making sure that the emissions are not over a certain threshold. So if I'm importing a new Volkswagen to the U.S., the EPA looks at that Volkswagen, starts it up, runs tests, everything for a certain motor category, certain motor. And then they say, okay, you're certified. You're allowed to sell this Volkswagen in the US from overseas. The certification does not go away because you decide that you wanna turn your 2017 Cummins into a pure race vehicle. That's the EPA's argument. The EPA's argument is that a certified vehicle is a certified vehicle until it's 25 years old, and then you can turn it into a race vehicle, okay? The RPM Act is designed to carve out a section of the Clean Air Act to allow for vehicles that are 25 years and newer to be converted into genuine race vehicles to be used off-road. Meaning, if I have my 2017 Cummins and I want to strip it all the way down and put it in a cage and put on a fuel cell and put on race tires and tune it and put every part imaginable, right, onto that vehicle, I should be allowed to do that. Because I'm not taking that out on my Sunday drive from Boulder, Colorado to Denver to get lunch with my family. So I'm not driving it on the road, okay? And the roads are obviously have federal funding, federal regulation. I think it's obvious that if you have a genuine race vehicle, no matter what year it is, if you're only using it for racing, it should not matter what year it is because anything related to that year doesn't have any impact on the vehicle that you're actually racing. Meaning I can take the frame of a 67 Ford or a 2007 Cummins, I can, or a Dodge, I can put them on the same exact build 
And it doesn't matter what year it was made because everything under the hood is different. I'm racing it, right? Yeah. So the RPM Act seeks to carve out that little niche for genuine racing vehicles that you tow to the, that you trailer to the racetrack, you get in, you race, and you trailer them home. They're never driven on, on the road, okay? What the RPM Act does not do is legally allow you to manufacture delete parts, even if it were passed tomorrow, it would not legally allow any of us in this industry to manufacture EGR deletes for race purposes, DPF deletes for race purposes, tunes for race purposes, okay? The reason it does not allow for that is because specifically of the volume of sale that companies are engaged in. So just because the EPA passes the RPM Act and they say that I can legally race my 2017 Dodge off the road does not mean that, you know, Stewart's Motorsports located in Colorado can all of a sudden go out there and manufacture 10,000 EGR deletes and then sell them on the open market. And the reason is because it is not plausible under any circumstance that there are 10,000 race vehicles located here in Boulder, Colorado yeah. that I would be selling those parts to. Those EGR deletes or DPF deletes or tunes or whatever they may be, those are clearly designed to go on the road and one, one form or another, either through you know, just somebody who just wants a normal tune or somebody who wants a full-blown race build and they're just driving it on the road. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Cause I, I can see the separation between they seem like two separate things. So there's the on-road enforcement that we just, we went through with penalties and fines and what you can and can't do and how they enforce it. And this race specific area of the RPM act and really a year range of what you, what you can do in carving that out. And I think that's a lot of the, the misconception that, you know, even I had just, I hadn't really researched it. I had just seen, you know, support it and sign this, you know, click this link. And, and I would just read real briefly about it. And so many people asked about it. I was like, we need to spend a little bit of time just talking about what it is, what it doesn't, I think really what it doesn't do. Cause there might yeah. be a misconception that, Hey, <clears throat> this passes. And it's yeah, like, they, yeah, the, 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 I think the RPM act is great. I think that if I want to build a race vehicle, it should not matter what year it is. But Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The RPM Act is not going to help our industry. Okay. It is not going to allow people to write tunes that act that that operate with the emissions off. It is not going to stop EPA enforcement. It is not going to allow us to manufacture EGR blocker plates or straight pipes. That is not what the RPM Act will do. And any hope for our industry that 
the RPM Act is some kind of a saving grace of a law is misplaced. And I don't want there to be misinformation about what the RPM Act is and what it does, because I think that when you're in an industry and your livelihood is dependent on, you know, working on vehicles or manufacturing parts for vehicles, that it's really easy to get, to get, uh, you know, guided into a, a false hope that the RPM Act could really make a difference. The RPM Act, even if it's passed tomorrow, the RPM Act is not going to save our industry. I will also say this, and this I think is pretty important. In representing my clients, I have run into a lot of people who have manufactured parts for race vehicles. And I have run into a lot of people that have genuine race vehicles that you trailer to and from the racetrack, whatever racetrack it may be, you know, depending on the application, sled pulls, you know, whatever. I have never seen the EPA once when presented with documentation that you have an actual race vehicle, regardless of the year, take a race vehicle off the racetrack, regardless of what year it is. I've seen people with, with diesel builds that have, you know, that start out as 2017 Cummins, like we were just talking about. Yeah. And if I can demonstrate that that vehicle does not have a license plate on behalf of my client, and I can show them that that vehicle is not driven on the road and it, it doesn't have the ability to be driven on the road, the EPA leaves it alone. I have never seen the EPA come and say, hey, Stuart and your 2017 Cummins, you got to tear that thing apart. Because what they're looking for is actual evidence that it's being driven at the racetrack. And what the problem is, is that the people who are manufacturing deletes or other aftermarket parts in bulk, they can't provide the documentation. So the EPA is onto that scheme, um, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, it's just the RPM Act is not, is not going to help us. So where it would, where it would help though, would be if you had a newer vehicle that you wanted to convert to a race truck and you documented it and say you had a company and you manufactured parts to support that vehicle, say that 2017, and you could show, Hey, I have sold 50 of these parts, yep. which could be representative of there's 50 2017s out there that are full-blown race trucks. But if you say, Hey, through that discovery and some of the things you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I sold 500,000 of these parts. They're going to look at that and be like, there's no way there's 500,000 of these trucks that are race trucks and you have no proof of it. Is that there's, that's exactly right. That's uh, put it better than I could. Honestly. Um, it's the volume of the parts. That's the dead giveaway because there's a SEMA claims and I don't have any reason to believe this is not true. SEMA claims that there are 195,000 dedicated race vehicles in the U.S., okay? They just uh, identified this number in a recent amicus brief that they filed uh, pursuant to a lawsuit involving GDX in district court in Arizona, federal court. I imagine that case is going to either go to the Arizona Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court uh, sometime soon, depending on what the result is. But the EPA laid out an argument in that brief 
And uh, Corey Willis, uh, thankfully, I'll give him a shout out. Corey Willis shared this brief on on his uh, Facebook page, I believe, if anybody wants access to it. Um, this SEMA joined this brief as what's called in what's called amicus status. And it basically means that they're not a party to the lawsuit, but they are an interested party in what happens. And the EPA relied exactly on the argument that you and I just talked about, okay? We don't know if they're gonna win or not, but they've made that argument, which is, you show me that these vehicles, these parts are being installed on actual race vehicles, they may not just say, we'll leave you alone, but I haven't seen them pursue it. Okay. And I represented 50 companies so far, more you know, by the day, depending on who they are. <laughs> I've never seen them, when presented with the actual race evidence, continue to conduct an enforcement. But if you're selling 500,000, just like you just said in your example, they're looking at that and they're saying, it's not believable. It, it can't be true. So they know that some of those parts are ending up on the road. And that is the basis for the compliance initiative and their aftermarket enforcement that we've seen over the course of the last year and 19 months or 21 months. Really helps to understand it because it, it, it can seem from the outside looking in that they're saying you can't race anymore. You're done. It doesn't matter what you're, you're finished. And, you know, we, we don't deal with this on a daily basis like you do. So it really does help to, to get a handle on it and understand what these companies are facing, what people are passionate about, which racing, it, 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 it's a, it's a huge sport and it's been yeah. one for quite a long time. And, and I know people are passionate about that. And, you know, a lot of these other questions we got, they kind of go hand in hand with this a bit. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you a few of them here. They were really good. Um, yep. and somebody had asked, do emissions attach to the engine or the year of the truck or both? And I know that kind of fits in with the time frame we just talked about with, with uh, a, a race vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a great question. I've run into this locally in Colorado. Um, the This is really a state regulation, Okay. You can do conversions, and typically speaking, the conversion, the rules related to conversions have to do with whatever the newest portion of the vehicle is. So if you're taking a 5.9 Dodge and you want to put a 6.7 in it, and the 6.7 has all uh, been certified by the EPA with all the emissions compliant uh, or all the emissions products on it, EGR. DPF, SCR, all the stuff that we know about. Then in Colorado, you go in to get a test done, an emissions test. And they will say, you have to have all the emissions present on this vehicle because the motor requires emissions. If you take the reverse, if you take a newer body style, and you put a 5.9 in there, they're gonna say, this is a 2017 Cummins. You have to have the emissions present on it in order to drive it on the road. And you say, well, it's a 5.9 motor. They say, I don't care. I know that you can't retroactively put the emissions on, but you're supposed to have a 6.7 motor in this. 
The caveat to what I just said is that is how the local authorities in Colorado treat it. And that's how the EPA treats it. And that's definitely how the state of California treats it, who's most stringent. But there's a lot of states where they do not have emissions testing. And there's a lot of states that they don't have certain requirements. So there are some states where if you wanna do a conversion, you can do it to your heart's content. Is it legal? Probably not. But what are the chances you're ever gonna get caught doing it or in trouble or get a fine? On an individual basis, very low. That was the next question that someone asked as an individual or is the EPA going after individual truck owners versus companies? As of right now, I have seen no EPA enforcement on individuals. And that was the biggest question that I got after our first podcast, Patrick, was, hey, I'm so-and-so, I live in Salt Lake City, uh, you know, uh, I want to know, I bought this deleted truck, I didn't know it was deleted, what do I need to do? Do I need to put it back to stock? The answer to that question is, they're not enforcing on individuals because it's way too time intensive and it's way too uh, expensive to do that. So what they're doing now is they're focusing on the companies that manufacture number one, and then they're focusing on the companies that resell or install number two. Now, does that mean it's legal to drive a deleted truck? No, it doesn't. Even in an area where you don't have emissions, it's federally illegal. But the biggest problem that customers are going to run into when it comes to having a deleted truck or buying a deleted truck, there's, there's two main problems with this. Number one is, if I'm selling my truck and it's deleted, I have a legal obligation, no matter what state I'm in, to disclose to the party that's buying it that it's probably not legal to drive because it's been deleted. A lot of times, if you're selling one of these things to someone like my dad, no way. You won't touch it. Um, you just want to make sure if you're buying or selling a deleted truck that the person who's selling it is making that disclosure because if they're not, there's a lot of consumer protection acts and a lot of other laws around the country that would apply, okay? The second problem is as we get further down this enforcement road, then the EPA, you know, continues to enforce the same way that they're enforcing now. The products are going to become more scarce. The products are going to become harder to find. The products are going to become uh, harder to install because they're harder to get. And most importantly, they're not going to offer support, especially for the tunes. In the consent agreements, which is a fancy word for a settlement agreement, the clients that I've done with the EPA, very oftentimes the consent agreements include a provision that say that you will not work on these trucks, you will not repair them, and you will not provide support for them. It is illegal to work on a deleted truck if you're doing anything that relates to the motor or the exhaust or any of the motor components. So can you work on them? You can put a suspension on. You can put new wheels and tires on. You can you know, put an intercooler in, maybe. Can you do a head gasket? Technically, you can't. 
So the biggest problem that people are going to run into as time goes on and the EPA's enforcement continues is that they're just going to be like, this isn't worth it. I'm not doing it anymore. And then all of a sudden you're going to have a deleted truck and something fails on it and you're going to have to put it back to stock to get it repaired. So that's, I think, the EPA's end game. And that's where I think they're going with the enforcement in general. Well, I've, I've had people message in and, and they've bought in trucks like that. And then they they want to put the stuff back on. And I think a lot of it has to do with the advancements that the industry, the aftermarket industry has made. Um, and even the OEMs with the quality of the parts and the refinement. Yeah. And they're wanting to, to convert them back. But that's, that's a, you know, a big question. This one is you know, can a company label something as race only and sell it, which, which I, I, I think is a great question to ask in that if you're going to do this, is there a path to do it for that race, that, that race part that we talked about? Yep. Yep. Uh, great question. Hear that one all the time. So um, the EPA hates race waivers and hates race disclaimers. Because in the beginning of their enforcement efforts, people were trying to hide behind these waivers and these disclaimers in order to sell arguably illegal parts. And they were trying to pass liability from the manufacturer, reseller, installer onto the customer and say, hey, they're the ones driving it. Okay. That doesn't work. That doesn't pass muster. In fact, the EPA looks at a race waiver as an aggravating factor for purposes of enforcement because they believe that you should know better, especially in 2021, maybe not in 2017, but definitely in 2021. There is a path forward to sell genuine race vehicles, and it's the same path that I described earlier, which is if you are going to manufacture and sell a tune a delete or anything that operates with the emissions off the vehicle, you have got to document the vehicle that that's going on to, and you've got to make sure that you believe that that vehicle is being driven only off-road. If it rolls into your shop and it's got license plates on it, that's it. I mean, you, you got to turn it away, okay? But the idea of saying, hey, this is only for race use, user installs at their own risk, that's not good enough. You have to demonstrate it's going on an actual race vehicle. And in order to demonstrate that, it usually takes more time and more effort than the margin that you would make on the part. Those are some good insights. And I think that that gives a, it answers a lot of questions people have had about the race only stuff. And, and especially you know, what you chatted about with the, the RPM Act and, and just what they enforce and and so I think, yeah, any other questions that come up related to, to racing, I know they can, people are going to be able to reach out to you or reach out to the podcast and ask us. There were just a couple more, and these ones are a little different. Um, this person said, can delete parts and tuning be purchased from overseas without repercussion? And that's, uh, I'm really curious to hear your answer on that one. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great, another great question. These are all great questions. These are all questions I hear all the time. Okay. Um, the, the short answer to the question is no. The longer answer, more comprehensive, thoughtful answer is it depends who you are. If you are an end user and you get a one-off part 
from overseas. And when you say overseas, I take that to mean just out of the country, yeah. obviously. Um, if you order something from China or wherever, then are you probably going to get in trouble for it? No, the EPA is only is relying on local and state uh, regulations to enforce on the individual user. They're not really doing much of that themselves. So if I want to get an EGR delete for my truck and I order one part, one kit from China and they ship it to me and I put it on, am I going to get in trouble? Probably not. If you are a wholesaler or a retailer or a shop and you order 10 parts from China or even five parts from China, you can't do that. It's, it's not, it, it, it's, the EPA may not have jurisdiction to request information from a company in China, but remember back to where we're getting, the EPA is getting their information these days. The EPA is getting their information these days from other shops, from wholesalers, from other people who might've sold you that part, or they're getting it based on an anonymous tip that has supporting documentation, things like that. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really slippery slope. And if you order five or you order 10, you're more likely than not to attract attention if you order 500, you're definitely going to attract attention. So if, if I'm a wholesaler or a retailer, I'm staying away from stuff overseas altogether. If I'm a end user and I really want to make a race vehicle and nobody's going to work on my 2017 Cummins in our hypothetical, then it's totally up to them. They probably won't get in trouble. The next question was, is this enforcement only focused on diesel or, or, or gas? Is the gas, the gas aftermarket also being affected by these enforcement policies or, or things that, that you've gone over with us? Yeah. Uh, gas is on the way. Um, diesel was the first to market with the DPFs, the EGRs, the SCRs, um, the, the real bulky, complicated emissions parts, not just the cat, not just, you know, some of the more rudimentary stuff. Um, but that's, so that, so that's why the diesel industry, people feel like the EPA is picking on the diesel industry. Yeah. It's not that they're necessarily picking on the diesel industry right now. Uh, I mean, they are <laughs> obviously because it's yeah. part of the compliance initiative, but it's just because they were the first ones to have all these parts that people decided to take off because they didn't work. The gas industry is next, the gas performance industry. You have GPFs on vehicles now. You're not allowed to take those off. And Colorado, I don't know if you were aware of this, Patrick. This is not in what you and I talked about before the podcast. Colorado just made a law that said you are not allowed to purchase or install an aftermarket cat on any gas vehicle. I didn't know that. At all. Wow. You have got to have a OEM cat. And that's gas. I mean, you have cats on diesels, obviously, but, th but that's affecting the gas market. So I've seen some stuff under the same basis for enforcement in the um, 
in the uh, gas world that's been coming up on Facebook. I've seen some posts. I've seen some complaints. Um, I would expect that as the DPF market goes down for any kind of delete stuff, the gas market is going to rocket up and they're going to be sitting right where diesels are in three to five years, maybe less. The last question, and this is this happens a lot when when uh, we hear about emissions and EPA and CARB and different things like that, is people wonder, how far does this go? Does it extend into suspension, to ride height, to things that don't pertain to the engine or tuning or anything like that? Or does it, most of this just really affect the powertrain and, and the tuning and electronics and, and the hard parts in the engine or exhaust? Yeah, uh, yeah that's uh, uh, something I hear all the time as well. Um, if it's not affecting air and fuel, it's probably, it's not being targeted, period. Suspension is not being targeted. It does not matter how funky, how fast, anything. Um, suspension does not affect emissions to the degree that the EPA would, would be considering that to be an issue, okay? Um, it's almost all, at least in our industry, and, and coming up in the gas, it's almost all tunes, EGR stuff, exhaust engine parts, um, things like that. Hard parts are in a gray area right now. Uh, the EPA believes that certain hard parts negatively affect emissions that don't. And the EPA also has a list of hard parts that negatively affect emissions that do, that, that they have a right to enforce on. Um, so it's much harder to demonstrate that a hard part is illegal because you can't point to something like you can in a computer with a tune that says that, uh, you know, you're not, you know, this takes off the, the EGR allows for the function without the EGR. It's a lot harder to do that with the hard part, but, um, you know, there's, a, there's been no cases on it that have been tried. There's been no, you know, federal cases that have been taken up on an appellate level or a Supreme Court level. So we don't know yet really sort of how the hard parts parts are ultimately going to play out. But again, that goes back to our uh, discussion about the guidance related to the tampering, which has to do with if you want to sell a part in the United States right now, you must have it tested. And again, there's some stuff that's grandfathered in, but in general, you have to have the testing, whether it's through the state of California and, or otherwise. And then that brings me to a, I don't know if we have time, if we don't, then that's okay. Yeah, but it brings sure. me to the, to the EasyLink case, which is just filed. Are you aware of this? Yeah, that, well, I, I've, I've heard a little bit about it and that's where a lot of the, the audience questions came from. And they said, Hey, get Stuart back on and chat with him about, you know, the RPM act and all these different things. So it's, I think it's at the forefront yeah. right now. Okay. I'll, I'll talk briefly because uh, I know your time's valuable and all the listeners, of course, um, don't want to be sitting through, you know, a 90 minute podcast unless they're really interested, <laughs> but um, EasyLink is an interesting case. Uh, it's just filed in federal court. The owners of EasyLink uh, alleged owners were sued personally, the company EasyLink, and then the there's another party to it, the um, uh, Premier Worldwide was sued. And there's a lot of people out there 
that I'm seeing online saying, how can they sue Easy Link? Easy Link is, is uh, like suing a, if you have a, a firearm, it's like suing somebody who manufactures a bump stock or suing somebody who manufactures a clip, right? Because the clip isn't shooting the gun. The gun doesn't, I mean, you can operate a gun without a certain size clip. You can operate a gun without a bump stock. What, you know, how is this illegal? It's a great legal question and one that I don't know the answer to, but I will tell you what the basis is for the EPA's lawsuit so the, so the listeners understand it. What they're saying in their lawsuit is that EasyLink was uh, manufactured to support, specifically to support delete products, okay? So they're not necessarily proceeding with this lawsuit on the basis that EasyLink as a product itself is illegal. What they're saying is that EasyLink was working in conjunction with companies that provided deletes, and then they provided support for the operation of the EasyLink device in conjunction with the aftermarket delete part, okay? So what they're doing is they're saying, I mean, they're not saying this, but maybe the EasyLink device itself is just a tool. It's not really going to, you know, you can't really, you can't really do something illegal if you only have the blank EasyLink, but that's not what the EPA is arguing. What they're arguing is that they're saying that it is just a blank tool that you can use for a variety of different reasons. But if you look at all the other circumstances surrounding what EasyLink did, provide support for delete products, call-in center, online support, uh, having a business that was primarily located off soil so that they couldn't, the EPA couldn't get their hands on it. All those other factors are the reason that, that they brought the EasyLink case and they're trying to tie them all together. So I hope that clears things up a little bit. I don't know if the EPA is going to prevail in that lawsuit, I personally think that EasyLink is just a tool, like a bump stock or a or a magazine for your gun, and that you know what somebody does with it is what they do with it. It's not specifically designed to delete a vehicle, but the EPA obviously feels differently. So we'll see we'll see how that one plays out. Yeah, that, that's definitely a bit different than you know what we what we talked about on the podcast and. It'll be interesting to follow it, and I'm sure you know in the future as things progress. It seems like in the emission diesel aftermarket, and well, the aftermarket in general, even with gas, is progressing really fast. So I appreciate you taking time today, and even beforehand, you know, when I got you, you got uh, yeah. reached out to you, you know, be, being willing to chat with us and educate us on what's going on in the aftermarket and with emissions. Yeah, my uh, my practice area, based on my experience I discussed earlier, has transitioned almost exclusively to this kind of law. So I would invite uh, any other questions that you have. I'd be happy to answer. I'd happy to be get on the. Uh, I'd be happy to get on your podcast anytime you want to have me. I'm always happy to talk about the industry, and uh, I just want to thank you and the listeners for uh, taking the time to listen to me. Now, if anybody has a question or a shop owner, maybe they just got one of these RFIs or, mm. or they just want to be proactive, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, you can reach me by email. It's Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, at 
Hassan Cables, H-A-S-S-A-N-C-A-B-L-E-S.com. Cables is my last name. Stuart, obviously my first name. It's a EW, not a U, which some people uh, make a mistake. Um, after your first podcast, I got a lot of emails. I did my very best to respond to them. I'm happy to do the same for the people who have questions after this podcast, but I think that we really covered a lot of good ground. So hopefully we were able to clear up some of the questions people had. Absolutely. Yeah. As, as I mentioned, thank you again, Stuart. And it definitely gave us some more insights and knowledge and look forward to chatting with you again here in the future. You too. Thanks, Patrick. Always happy to come on. Don't forget diesel fans. If there's any questions you guys have about what we discuss, Stuart gave out his contact information. We encourage you to reach out to him. If there's any questions you have for us, would like us to you know, maybe ask something a little bit different or address a particular part that we didn't get on the podcast, just send us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook, search the diesel podcast, or you can comment on this video on YouTube or send us an email to info at the diesel Till next time, keep the shiny side up.